Because uh, to me it spoke volumes in terms of human interaction, community building, and uh, a host of uh, other topics. And the ideal or the, the, the concept for me is that um, our lives like nature, you know, we transitions, we, you know, as nature does, the universe or whatever, has a, a, a life cycle of its own, transitional life cycle. So we're always transitioning. And uh, our paths, our walks in life, you know, the crossroads of life, whatever the junctures are, we intersect, we cross paths. You know, so we have that interaction. And with that coupling, um, of activities, um, it turns out to be transformative. You know, something happens in that in in, in that space. It's either growth, something re life regenerative, or something death. You know, something uh, fizzling out. It's, it's it's a birth or or on um, or death. You know. The universe has that same practice. You know, the new stars are born when the old stars um, die out. Uh, you know, life has that, 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 that purpose. So for, with that being said, you know, trans world is generally, or trans is generally um, uh, thought of as something sexual oriented or, or some kind of gender issue. That's not it. I have a I have a broader world view than most, and um, I'm trying to um, take the concepts that I've learned through uh, my community participation with organizations like uh, Coalition of Homelessness, um, the Reentry Council, with the Adult Probation Department. Um, hospitality House, uh, Wildflowers Institute, um, St. James's Family, places like SMCA's Foundation, Stonewall, and uh, BBE, Black Brothers Things. Uh, I, I try to take the, the concepts of community building and meeting people where they're at and trying to um, build on that, you know, as add another dynamic to to all of that. Um, and it's a struggle. I mean, you know, when I tell people that I'm presenting the opportunity for the community to come together, you know, and, and, and voice, you know, have this narrative or this conversation, and try to implement some kind of um, change in social behavior, the social dynamics, or the social contract. Or you know, I, I'm, I'm generally, I'm, I'm generally received well. But then uh, there's always that question of, am I in my right mind, or am I under some kind of substance, or, or what's going on with me? Well, what's going on with me is that there's too many lies uh, being lost in in in, the, in in this community, 
as well as in all other communities across this nation. But specifically speaking to San Francisco, there's there's lives being lost. There's there's opportunities being missed. Mm. There's um, a lack of a narrative. I mean, there's a lot of misinformation um, being put forth, and people are just lying just to, for the sake of lying to hear themselves talk. You know, and the truth isn't really being told. There's a few people that tell the truth, but you know, they're not. There's those who don't live it. And then there's who's, who's struggling through, you know, because of their uh, uh, truthfulness or their stance on uh, righteous indignation, they're being vilified. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, the thing of it is with me is, uh, it's like when Rodney King said, uh, when he got beat down by the police years ago, can't we all just get along? Well, th that was a prophetic statement. Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just get along? And, and what does that mean in a perfect world? What does that mean to to any of us? Can we just get along? Are we just uh, going to play lip service to the whole ideation? You know, uh, what is it? Uh, world peace or mm. civil uh, civil liberties, and you know, being just um, polite to one another. I, I, you know, too much lip service is give, being given to those kind of iconic statements or ideas. You know, I know that we all have an inalienable right to do what we want to do, say what we want to say. But you know, I have issues with people who who are not accountable or responsible for what they for their be, for their actions or for what comes out of their mouth. You know, I don't ask. Uh, to be lied to. I don't ask to be a witness uh, to misrepresentations. You know, I, I like, I really like uh, to be told the truth most of the time. And um, I like to believe that everybody who, regardless of what your status or your class or your your economic situation is, is, is being above reproach. Everybody is above reproach. That's how I choose to see people, even though I know that there's a dark side of everything and everyone. But, uh, I, you know, too much focus is, is being given to um, the traumatic dark sides of our, our, our living experiences and exchanges. I like to see, the, see something, uh, you know, that's of light, you know, something life-enhancing, mm -hmm. uh, life-regenerative. You know, something you know that that's brilliant and luminous. You know, you know, and I and, and I, I believe that life is full of that because we see it represented in in all aspects of nature and and living. But you know, that's just me. So, well, I can relate to a lot of what you're saying. Oh, you can. Yeah, in oh. terms of growing up and not being told the truth and how easy it is to internalize that and how damaging it is and how it just kind of continues on this idea especially people in positions of power and with the media like the loudest voices we hear are the ones that tell us the, the biggest lies <coughs> excuse me um, yeah but you know um, that's our, that, that's the result of um, 
uh, the, the social aspect of it. it but for me, I identify that misrepresentation, misrepresentation starting with um, at home. Mm-hmm. Where we lay our head at night. Yeah. Who we look up to as um, uh, our, our, our uh, mentors and who we want to um, uh, who we want to who we have this um, I don't know what kind of, I don't know what kind of relationship but you know people that we we trust you know who we you know and you know depending on how you what your family dynamics are you know that determines a whole lot of that yes and I've always said the world can't hurt you nowhere near as bad as what happens at home yeah domestically behind closed doors you know that's the killing ground as far as I'm concerned that's where it all starts you know and and um it's sad to say, but uh, that's the reality. So, you know, you know, having those experiences only prepare you for what's going on in the real world. You know, you can you can uh, transition all of that into you know your path in life. You know, and the outcome would be the end result of. You know, what you're you know what you craft out of it you know what what you build but um you know it it takes a lot it's a challenge you know and it, it takes a lot to have to deal with that kind of stuff and to overcome those kind of uh disparities but it all starts at home you know so and and I've seen a lot of that you know, and you can just about listen to the way people talk. Yeah, uh, it w- it's reflected in their 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 articulation of, of whatever it is that they're trying to allude to you know, by way way of speaking speaking on it. But yeah, it's I consider it, I ca- I call it a camouflage of rationality. Mm-hmm. You know, ca- um, camouflaging. You know, substantive cognitive um, realities uh, but that's my spin on it <coughs> and and not sure exactly what to to add to that but well, it's definitely what is it, to, what is it to, I mean come on now I mean that, that's not nothing that's not that difficult to follow but anyways um, like I said Depending on what your family dynamics is like determines um, how you interact and how you navigate through yes. through life. Okay, so and then if you're coming into a hotbed of societal conflicts and things, then uh, uh, what you what you brought with you, you know, you added. That's the extra baggage. Yes, you know, you're left home with baggage. Now you're out here in the world with more baggage. You're oh, collecting yeah. baggage as yep. you navigate through yeah. through through life, and then that's that that those materials you're constructing something 
you know, your 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 whatever your ideation of, of, of this 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 uh, baggage that you're looking from place to place. Uh, you're constructing something. You're building something. You know? So you know, and and that determines how you see the rest of the world. Right. You know. So it's, and that I mean that's. Uh that's a good way of looking at it and it explains why people act the way they do is that they're so used to being hurt yeah, that I, people end up hurting others like I know people end up repeating behavior or putting themselves in situations that they've been in before because that's all they know yeah and f- for me to have lived through that and to see it perpetuated in all aspects of society in all these institutions you know uh, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, the Cub Scouts, the YMYWCA, uh, Protestants, Catholics, Methodists, Orthodox, non-Orthodox, uh, Universal, whatever, uh, uh, GOP, uh, Democratic, uh, Independent, whoever, whatever the construct is, you know the. The, the the main um, the main uh, salient to that is that divide that divisiveness mm. that you know that that you bring to the world from your experiences at home you know and you know yeah but any you know aside from that um, my goal since I got involved with uh, Mutiny Radio and Bay Area Video Coalition is to build a community. I'm trying to build a community. I'm trying to take all this stuff that I've learned from these different grassroots peer-based organization opportunities and I'm trying to construct a community of like-minded people. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, those the who who are free you know, who are free from all this rhetorical, um, senseless jargon. All the, what is this thing? It's what, ebonics or whatever, whatever the language is, whatever the trend is. You know, there, there. I want to be. I want to be around people who are lucid and in their right mind. Yeah. Okay. I don't care about. Um, their practices I'm not accountable and responsible for their behavior I'm only accountable and I say this all the time I'm only accountable and responsible for what comes out of my mouth and for how I treat people yeah so and then given that I don't look to be treated um, in the measure in which I give treatment because it never happens that way and so therefore yeah I, I'm free from those kind of expectations. I don't have expectations. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't have expectations because it's when you start uh, 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 establishing those kind of um, systems, something comes along and and with all a wrench in it, and there you go. You're going out the world backwards yeah. because you put too much emphasis or value or whatever on those expectations. Yeah, I, I definitely suffer from that. I, I've, I've been working on it, but I can't help but go into situations where 
I have an idea of what I want to say or what I want to accomplish. And then somewhere along the way, I either trip myself, which is often the case, or I, things don't quite come out the way I want them to or expect them to. And then I end up uh, regretting things in a way when if I were to go into it with no expectations and no assumptions as to how things would turn out, I think things would have gone a lot better. Well, you know, that's your experience. You know, uh, um, for me, I wasn't, it was never um, uh, to address, to speak to that. Um, for me, it was never given that um, uh, whatever the expectations for me of that day or that time, during that time, it was it was never given I was never sh going I was no it was the opportunity to realize it and, and for it to come to fruition never happened because of the fact that um, it was somebody else's expectations yeah not mine and um, I've always been that kind of person that that bucked anybody's systems uh, governance whatever I've had a have had a, a long history of bucking systems, uh, breaking rules and mm. breaking laws and all of that. And that's not because I was aimlessly doing something just to be doing it. Because I felt that there was a lot of injustice, yes, and and, and a lot of mistreatment and abuse associated with with uh, with all of that. But um, it was plain. It was made plain. Uh, uh, Painfully clear to me that um, when I was told years ago that I was black. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Dr. Robert Allen Goldberg. He is currently director of the Tanner Humanities Center at the University of Utah, where he has been a professor for some years. He has an extraordinary resume in terms of, of his production on a number of topics, but particularly on the subject of uh, both conspiracy uh, history, conspiracy theories, uh, on which he did a book called Enemies Within, uh, published in 2002, The Culture of Conspiracy in Modern America. He has also written a great deal on the life and times of former Senator Goldwater. Dr. Goldberg is currently with us today, uh, both in connection with research he is doing here as well as a program at the museum, and he's graciously agreed to do a podcast on the subject in which he is, is, is clearly uh, one of the most, exp most expert uh, views and minds that I've encountered on the subject of conspiracies and conspiracy theories. Let me just start out, if I may, Bob, by asking you if you feel that the times we live in right now, before we look backwards, but the times we live in right now, uh, 2007 as we speak, 
uh, with with the the immersion in, in at least one and a half wars in the Middle East, uh, the widespread concern about terrorism, uh, both outside the country and within. If this seems to you a particularly ripe period for the proliferation of even more conspiracy theories about current events and what is happening in our times. First, Peter, thank you very much for inviting me, and uh, I'm pleased to be joining you uh, this afternoon on this podcast. Since 9-11, since 2001, Americans have been hungry for conspiracy theories, hungry for explanations that go beyond the news, the mainstream news, seeking to find hidden hands to events. I think this is a period where uh, many sources feed our hunger, and we seek in a variety of ways to digest. I don't think this period is more unusual than some periods. The 1990s were what I call a hothouse for conspiracy thinking, and the time before the Civil War as well. But this period does stand out specifically, again, because of 9-11 as a, a potent period for conspiracy theories. Let me just, let us just look back for a moment. I know you have some very well-developed approaches to understanding both how conspiracy theories get started and how they, in fact, grow and are greatly magnified. I wonder if you could just take a moment and give me your sense of sort of the mainstreams of the origin of conspiracy theories and what continues to feed them. Sure. Peter, first let me note that America is not unique in its conspiracy thinking. If I looked around the world, I would say the most avid conspiracists probably live in the Middle East. Conspiracy thinking uh, inflames editorials, guides government policy, and captures, obsesses the minds of scores of people in the Middle East, whether Arab or Jewish. I look at history, and I think if there were conspiratorial nations, I'd look at Nazi Germany in the 1930s and uh, the Soviet Union in the 1940s and 1950s. What is amazing to me at the same time is how we have made conspiracy thinking in the United States, in the Americans, uh, a, a key component of who we are and our worldview. And I go back to the 17th century, to the 1600s, and find as the people got off the boat in New England, as they got off the boat in Jamestown, their minds already were peppered with ideas of conspiracy. European ancestors uh, looked at European history as filled with popish plots and Protestant conspiracies and Jewish subversion of the various societies. And our ancestors brought those over with them. Now, I believe that these ideas thrived in America for s several key reasons. I think the first key reason is our understanding of who we are as a people. Um, looking back again to the 17th century, Americans believed that they were on a mission, that God had sent them to the new world to raise up a new kind of place, God's kingdom. This was going to be a lighthouse onto the world, doing good for all mankind and womankind. I look at the 19th century and I hear the cry of manifest destiny. The idea that there was an obvious, clear responsibility that Americans had to God or to themselves to create this continental showcase of power for God's will and for civilization's need. And I look at American history in the 20th century. In my mind, you cannot understand America's wars, whether World War I all the way to the current war in Iraq, unless you believe that Americans have this idealistic reason to make the world a better place.
Now, if you're doing the work of good and you're doing the work of God and you're doing the work of civilization, that draws the attention of Satan, of uh, the Antichrist, or the current evildoers and ev the axis of evil. That is, those people who seek to do well are going to attract those people who seek to do harm. I think that's a key factor, the idea of mission. The second is American diversity. Diversity of uh, America is an amalgam of people, our strength in my mind. But to other people, that diversity is actually a curse. That is, those people who are different from us are now within our gates. Those people who believe in other doctrines and lords and leaders are now within and are subversives. I'm always intrigued by the word un-American, for example. You can't be un-French and you can't be un-Swedish, but you can be un-American, and that's something peculiar to this country. And then there's a third motivating force, and that is America's experience with centralized government. And this goes back to the colonial period and is accelerated with the increase in power of the federal government in Washington, D.C. We believe that when people get power, they become arrogant in the use of power. When people have power and authority, they seek to build more power and more authority, and that leads to a form of corruption. Some Americans can quote Winston Churchill, but many Americans can quote Lord Acton. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think it was Thomas Jefferson who said, indeed, the federal government is our foreign government. Barry Goldwater would say that, Ronald Reagan would certainly agree, and millions more of Americans would. The idea of centralized power leads us to realize in order to maintain our liberties, which are so fragile, we always must have a constant vigilance. A constant vigilance which puts us in a state of, if you will, anxiety, of tension, because we know that we have to check and balance those people who are arrogant. So in that state of insecurity, added to the question of diversity, and finally the idea of mission, I think we create the fertile ground which allows conspiracy theories to grow. Well, I know, Bob, when you and I were speaking earlier, uh, you touched on this, that is the sort of, that, that, that part of the iceberg that, that's, that's under the sea that is our history, that's our background, that has led us to believe uh, in the ways that we do. Um, but you also touched on at least three elements that you feel have accelerated that process, exacerbated, if you will, in our times. And I wonder if you could just touch on those while we're here. Sure. Uh, when, I, when people think about conspiracy theories, the first thing they think about are conspiracy theorists, the people who weave events into, into plots, the people who write the books and create the videos on YouTube or uh, that you can buy in the store, showing us detail by detail. And that's a key thing about conspiracy theories. They are incredibly detailed, giving us secret insider information which will reveal the truth. I think it's important to think about these people because these are the people where it begins. They create the ideas. They sell the plots. But these people exist in a wider context. And the wider context cultivates and facilitates the growth and the creation of these conspiracy theories. And I want to add two actors to the conspiracy theorist. The first actor is the American media in Hollywood and on television. 
movies and television. From the movie Birth of a Nation, created in 1915, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in the 1930s, uh, Vanilla Sky, uh, JFK, even Undercover Brother, all are based on the idea of conspiracy theories. We have been taught on the silver screen and the little screen, because you've got to remember the X-Files, the reruns and reruns and reruns of the X-Files, we are taught that conspiracies are real, conspiracies are dangerous, and conspiracies have infiltrated every aspect of American life. And we learn from our media mentors. There's a third element here, in addition to the conspiracy theorists, in addition to media, is the federal government. The federal government, in my mind, has practiced conspiracy thinking in regard to real and unreal threats in its history. It also practices, in my mind, a cult of secrecy in regard to the millions of civil servants who are tasked with classifying documents in secret. And add one other piece, and I, I want to remind myself of this wonderful quote by Susan Griffith, which was, wherever there is a secret, there is a rumor. And I think, add that to America's fear of centralized government and you have a great deal of concern. And finally, what is so key to understand the conspiracy theorists is the issue of trust and faith that the people have in their government. If you erode trust and faith, people look for alternative sources of authority. If they do not believe their government leaders, then there is trouble for this republic. And through Vietnam, and Watergate, Iran-Contra, the current war in Iraq, there has been a credibility gap. Uh, Oliver Stone is quoted as once saying, the history of Americans in the 20th century has been a history of betrayal. And I'm, I, I'm, I want to quote a, uh, a poll done by Gallup, and it's done by Gallup since the early 1960s, and I followed it until the mid-1990s. The question was, do you believe the government is doing what is right? And that question was asked in 1964, and 75% of Americans said, I believe the government is doing what is right all or most of the time. And this has been asked every year through the 90s. And in 1995, you had a mirror image, which was 25% of Americans believe the government was doing right all or most of the time. We have seen a vast erosion of trust and faith in the federal government. In Congress, in the medical profession, in the universities, in the courts, in a variety of key institutions in American society. When you have that loss of trust and faith, when you have that fear that your leaders are lying to you, that your institutions won't protect you, this is what allows conspiracy theorists to take the spotlight and to dominate. I know at one point in our discussion, you mentioned you felt there was, there was actually an element that, that both in some ways creates the conspiracy theories, but then does it in an entrepreneurial way. That is, the conspiracy theory becomes virtually, well, if you want, a way of business. Peter, there was a movie, and I'm very into movies, as you can tell from our discussion. There was a movie with Mel Gibson several years ago called Conspiracy Theory. Okay. And Mel Gibson was portrayed as the prototypical conspiracy theorist. He was anxious. He lived behind a door with eight or ten locks. His eyes darted left and right. He was clearly neurotic and sick. This is what we think about conspiracy theorists, that they're somehow misfits, people who are just simply not right. What I have found is that conspiracy theorists are very bright, 
They're male as well as female. They come from all races, genders, uh, ethnic groups. And they're very clever because what they do is they pursue their topics with what I call a vengeance of logic. And that is every single detail, every single fact, slippery mind you, but every single detail and fact need to be fitted together. Okay? These people also realize that their bread and butter, the only way they survive is by selling conspiracy theories. So when I was studying the Roswell incident, the idea that aliens had come to the planet and uh, the United States government had scooped them up, what I found was book would come out, and then three years later, a more sensational book would come out. And then three years later, another sensational book would come out. And that the witnesses, new witnesses were found, old witnesses' testimony was changed to make them more sensational because these people live and die by the sale of books and videos and newsletters. And we cannot discount, we cannot discount that entrepreneurial need that these folks have. And one final point about that. In the conspiracy theory movie with Mel Gibson, Mel was clearly not right in the head. But Mel was right. There was a conspiracy. And I think that, again, is the message that Hollywood gives. It's interesting. I, I served overseas, and I served in countries that had been overrun by foreign powers all through the centuries. And in a number of those cases, uh, these theories would be spun to me about why they could detect the fine hand of the United States covertly here or covertly there. And, of course, their whole history had been of a people in a land where foreign power, the foreign finger, as it was called, or the foreign hand, did do things so that the conspiracy theories that there was, they were taken up with now had a basis in fact, which is sort of what you're saying even about the Mel Gibson movie. Um, at the risk of being simplistic, um, it seems to me that the continued erosion of trust, even a basic level of trust in government, uh, and in and in the and and in public institutions, whether it is uh, the media or the university or that is academe or or medical profession, is not a good thing. It's an unhealthy thing, and I I, I would ask you as a historian, uh, to what extent we can tolerate that uh, indefinitely. Peter, I think it's absolutely dangerous. Um, you cannot have a society where the people do not trust their leaders and do not trust core institutions, whether the edu institutions that educate them or give justice in this country. Uh, I think that's a major problem. And I think conspiracy theories add and accentuate and accelerate the problem. Because what conspiracy theories do is conspiracy theories demonize. It's not that you made a wrong decision. You made a decision on purpose for wealth or power that leads to the death of several thousand people. It's not simply you did something wrong. You're unpatriotic. You've betrayed the country. And what we're talking about is when you use words like demonize and betray and calling people unpatriotic and un-American, then you are accelerating the, the, the problems of disunity. You're fraying the bonds of union. And what we have as a people, particularly in this amalgam of peoples that we call America, is this need to have a common faith and a common ideal and common support for our institutions. When you shed distrust on these institutions, when you deny the patriotism of your own leaders, that is, in my mind, a serious problem for the future of this republic. I, I know I had uh, one of my daughters went to see Oliver Stone's JFK with a friend, and when they came out, the friend turned to my daughter 
and said, gosh, that was, that was really, a, you know, I never knew it happened that way. In other words, there was an utter acceptance that this was the story of, of the assassination. Peter, in the 20th century, the greatest historians are filmmakers. Our people, whether they're young or old, don't read as much as they used to. Uh, newspapers are becoming almost a thing of the past. And what we know about history is what we see from Hollywood, what is in the cinema. And those images are much more powerful than anything anybody writes in a book. And the people who saw the JFK movie, and there actually have been studies done what the audience saw or felt before they went and what they felt after. And there is a decided shift in regard to conspiracy thinking after uh, from the attitudes before. But when you don't have people reading and when you don't have people analyzing, and this is the one glimpse or snapshot they get of the past, this is what they carry forward. In my mind, this is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Do you... Uh I would think that you as a historian and, and as a prominent mem member of academia, as a professor for some years, as a published author of, of non-fiction books, um, what do you see as an approach to this? I mean, obviously, if I could take your book and, and force every senior in high school to read it all over the country, I'm sure people would see a conspiracy theory behind that. But in a sense, what I'm asking you is, what is the answer? I, I realize that's terribly simplistic, but the, the, the answer, of course, is for people to somehow develop a better understanding. I'm, I'm thinking right now, as you know, as we speak, uh, Ken Burns' The War is on about World War II. Now, it's 15 hours. Uh, there is a companion volume, and, and, you know, if people could expose to that. I mean, it gives them a sense of what that war was about. It does address a little bit, you know, did Roosevelt know about Pearl Harbor and so forth. You do get some answer to those by a non-government source. So is part of what you're saying is our, should we look for, for an improved product on, in, by way of films, documentaries, things uh, that are not the printed word, which as you say are people are reading, are, are dealing with less and less. They're much more prone to, to turn on the TV or the iPod or something and, and get their news in nuggets. Peter, I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is going to be more pessimistic than you would like. There, well, I'm sure this <laughs> answer is going to be more pessimistic. Uh, I've been an educator for 30 years, and what I have seen in these 30 years is a decline in the desire to be curious, a decline in the desire to learn more. Uh, when I first started teaching in the 1970s, People would ask me after class, I'd like to read more on this topic. What should I read? I rarely get that. In fact, let me share a sentence from a student I had just yesterday. And that sentence was, uh, I don't like to read. And I, my response is, well, then you're not an American. Okay, because you as a citizen who is an American has an obligation and responsibility to read and to learn and to test what you believe. My biggest fear is that people are lazy in this country, have become very lazy, and are not willing to stretch themselves, to read more, to learn more, and they become incredibly gullible. And gullible means that they are susceptible to conspiracy theorists. To read a conspiracy theorist book, or any book, you have got to basically focus your mind and say, is the evidence here? Is this logical? 
as opposed to just read an adventure thriller, which is what many of these conspiracy theorists write. So I'm somewhat pessimistic, Peter, and uh, again, this is after 30 years of teaching. Well, let me, I'll ask you one last question. I'm a, a serious young person, male, female. Uh, I'm coming, beginning my professional life. Um, I haven't read a great deal. I don't have a great historical sense. I, I major, I got an MBA, uh, but not a, not a big grounding in history, although I, I would read things occasionally. I watch the History Channel sometimes. Um, but I do want to understand things better. I don't want to be gulled by the entrepreneurs of conspiracy theories and so forth. What, and yet I'm, I, am, I meet a proliferation of sources of information, the internet, whether it's Google or Yahoo or YouTube or MySpace. What might you say to me as a way of both keeping my professional grounding but having a sense of the reality of current events? I would advise any person who asks me that kind of question to keep your healthy skepticism as powerful as it possibly can be. And when you read a book, you watch a documentary, you watch a TV show, you have got to be tuned as to who produced this on the basis of what evidence was this produced. Because whether it's YouTube or the Internet, these are sources, to be frank, without the grounding of authority. I'll give you an example. I, I, taught a, I teach a class on conspiracy theories, and I send my students out to study conspiracy theories, and one came back with uh, uh, the Pearl Harbor conspiracy theory and uh, indicated to me that, yes, the Japanese had been lured by Franklin Roosevelt, and she was absolutely convinced. And I said, well, is there other evidence? Well, yeah, but I really like this one. And the key in whether I told my student this or I tell anybody else, after you're convinced about something, you've got to constantly look for information that confronts it. Because entering the conspiracist circle is a closed circle. It's a closed circle where there's no refutation, there's no dissonance, but everything is linked and in agreement. And you have got to have the power mental power to break out of that circle and constantly look for information that disputes what you believe. Well, Dr. Goldberg, Bob, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And uh, I want to take the extra step of, of really highly recommending your book, Enemies Within, and that was published by, uh, by uh, Yale, Yale University Press, 2003, Two. 2002. And I, I think it's a terrific read, and it very much is in alignment with what you've talked to us about this afternoon. I think what you're talking about is something terribly important. I think it has a lot to do with the future of this country. And so I really uh, I would urge people to follow up. If they're interested in this subject, they could, do, uh, they could not do better than, I think, taking a look at your book. And thank you again for joining us. And Peter, thank you, and thank you for all the hard questions. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast 
at spymuseum, that's one word, This dot episode org. of Stuff that's You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com slash history and enter offer code history at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And uh, today's topic was inspired by uh, an event that I got to go to last week but because I'm super lucky. I got to go see Neil deGrasse Tyson speak at Georgia Tech. Uh, which was sponsored, I believe, by their physics department. And during his lecture, which was spectacular, if you ever get a chance to see him speak, I highly recommend it. Uh, He mentioned that most people do not realize what an epicenter of scientific and mathematical growth medieval Islam was. Uh, So naturally, I got all excited about it because it was fascinating. And Neil deGrasse Tyson was saying it, (laughs) which automatically puts it above uh, many other things on the interest scale. So we're going to talk about math today. Do not become scared or frightened. Like I know Tracy's mentioned before, arithmetic is not her jam. No, Uh, I'm not particularly good at it. Well, and what's funny is arithmetic was really the the problem. Like I loved geometry and I loved doing proofs. Mm -hmm. But when it came to like the arithmetic portions of the proofs, I would get things wrong. Same thing with algebra. Yeah. Like, my algebra theory would be sound and my arithmetic would be faulty. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. Uh, so we're going to talk about math, but really only sort of. There will be a couple of equations mentioned, but they're super duper simple and they stand as examples only. You do not have to solve for X or any other letter <laughs> while you are listening. Uh, I love math in theory, but like Tracy, the actual reality of it is not always my strong suit. So believe me when I say that the math that we mentioned is really, really basic. And I apologize to any mathematicians in the crowd that may have been hoping for more, <laughs> but that's that's not going to happen on this one. So today we are focusing on an Islamic mathematician named Al-Khwarizmi and his contributions to the development of algebra and mathematics in general with his ninth, ninth century writings. So if you're going to guess where algebra originated, you might guess uh, ancient Greece or ancient Rome. Even though we're talking about an Arabic scholar today, it's important to remember that algebra does not have just one single origin point. Uh, It developed over time and in multiple places with lots of different mathematicians contributing to the overall field of knowledge. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like someone woke up one day and went, I'm inventing algebra. I'm imagining somebody just sitting bolt upright in their bed going, algebra! No, it arose out of a need for a way to calculate certain things, and we'll talk about that more specifically as we go on. Uh, The first traces of the concepts and fundamental ideas of algebra that we know of are from ancient Babylon. And these fall around about 2000 BCE. And then in the third century, uh, Diophantus of Alexandria, who is sometimes called the father of algebra, was writing extensively about algebraic equations and some of the the concepts of algebra. Uh, There was also an Indian math scholar named Brahmagupta who was writing extensively in the 600s, and he's considered a major influence on Al-Khwarizmi. Muhammad ibn Musa al-Khwarizmi was born around 780, and we don't know a lot about his early life, as is often the case with figures from that long ago. His exact place of birth is also kind of muddled by his name because it includes an origin signifier, but it's cited differently in various texts. We do know that he spent a significant amount of his life in Baghdad. 
And he grew up, as we know, to be a mathematician and an astronomer. And as an adult, he worked at the Dar al-Hikmah, or House of Wisdom. And the work of the House of Wisdom, which was a sort of scholarly academy that's sometimes likened to the Library at Alexandria, focused on the acquisition and translation of texts from throughout the world. The House of Wisdom may have been established by Caliph Harun al-Rashid, but Caliph al-Mamun, who followed him, is often recognized as the man who really made it into a seat of scholarly discovery. And before we get into sort of the most famous book that uh, Al-Khwarizmi worked on, we're going to do a quick ad. So when that killer idea hits, you want to snag a domain name and get your web hosting squared away really quickly. And with Domain.com's quick domain discovery system and easy checkout process, you'll have your website up and running in no time. You've heard it here before. Domain.com makes it easy to get your website up and running. Blog, create the website to show off your films, showcase your portfolio. You can make money with your own site. There is no end to what you can do. Uh, we like Domain.com because they're affordable, reliable, and they're super easy to use. With our special offer, you can get 15% off their already affordable prices. Buy domain names, buy web hosting, or buy email when you use coupon code HISTORY at Domain.com's checkout. And when you think domain names, think Domain.com. Okay, so now we will get back to the work that is primarily talked about when people discuss al and his influence on algebra. And that was called Al-Kitab al-Muqtazar fi Hizab al-Jabar wal-Muqabla, or the Compendious Book on Calculation by Completion and Balancing. And it was written by Al-Khwarizmi and published through the House of Wisdom, which produced original works as well as working on all of the translations we mentioned. The introduction to this book notes that Caliph al-Mamun and his thirst for scientific knowledge drove al-Khwarizmi to take on this whole project. Yeah, that kind of supports the idea that Caliph al-Mamun was really the one that that made the house of uh, wisdom flourish. And this book addresses the idea of balancing an equation across the equal sign in a systematic way, and it features examples of ways that this can be applied to fiscal transactions. And the book's goal was to provide, quote, what is easiest and most youthful in arithmetic, such as men constantly require in cases of inheritance, legacies, partition, lawsuits, and trade, and in all their dealings with one another, or where the measuring of lands, the digging of canals, geometrical computations, and other objects of various sorts and kinds are concerned. The Al-Jabar portion of the Arabic title is what gave algebra its name in the Latin translation of the text several hundred years later in the 12th century. The actual translation of the Arabic word algebar is reunion or reunion of broken parts. Yeah, also uh, algebra, the word, is also associated with bone setters. Uh, so if you ever hear it used in that terminology, that's why they both share the same uh, words. And the words Jabbar and Mukabla signify operations in this early state algebraic problem solving of quadratic equations. Uh, Jabbar names the operation where a numerical value is eliminated from one side of an equation and incorporated onto the other side to solve for an unknown. So, for example, if x plus 4 equals 9, then the act of subtracting 4 from both sides to solve for x is the Jabbar step. Right. And mukabla is an operation which cancels out duplicate elements of an equation to balance it. So, again, for an example, if you start with x minus y equals 12 minus y, y can be eliminated from both sides of the equation to solve for x equals 12. Again, I apologize to the mathematicians in the crowd because I'm sure they're like, this is the 
silliest way to explain this, uh, but we're keeping it very, very simple. In this book, Al Khwarizmi also establishes that all the problems that he talks about can be reduced down to one of six forms. And we should really note that he's speaking about them in terms of rhetoric and not as hard equations. Yeah, you don't actually see a lot of mathematical equations in some of the the translations they come about. But he basically was writing out like how to divide a thing by another thing. And it's not numerical at this point. And the book is laid out in three separate sections. And the first section is really the only one that speaks of algebraic concepts, though, again, they're not represented with figures, but they're written out. Uh, The second portion of the book, which is headed on business transactions, includes practical examples of measuring out ownership and proportions and also includes guides for measuring out geometrical shapes, such as cones and pyramids, uh, for the calculation of volumes and also for surveying needs. The third section of the book deals entirely with legacies, in other words, inheritances. Islamic inheritance law can be extremely complex and involves valuation of all the heirs, proportionate entitlement shares in relation to one another. So this last section of the book is composed entirely of example problems about dealing with inheritances. Yeah, it's. Uh, I've read a little bit about Islamic inheritance law, and I'm, I'm admittedly coming at it from a completely green perspective. It is so complex, uh, the way they sort of measure out different people's what they're entitled to based on who else is in the family, the sex of people in the family. uh, And it's all, you know, based in religious texts. So it's something that is very serious, but it is very hard to um, figure out. So this was really hugely helpful. And I have to giggle a little bit at the fact that most school students today learning algebra, and I did it too, so I apologize to my many fabulous math teachers, is that they will never need this stuff in real life. But the whole point of al text is designed entirely to solve practical day-to-day problems that require mathematical computation. So it just kind of made me laugh. Yeah. That the origins of algebra are entirely in real life needs. Not in abstract things that you feel like you're learning. Yeah, the same and I, school. I will say I've used algebra in my day-to-day life sometimes. Yeah. I use it in my day-to-day life in the podcast to calculate how many more things we have than we did <laughs> a month ago because I am interested in that as trivia. Yeah. Uh, but that was not the only book written by Al Khwarizmi. No, there was another mathematical book, although we don't have the original text. The earliest example we have is a 12th century Latin translation. Uh, it boils down to Al Khwarizmi uh, concerning the Hindu art of reckoning. Yeah, and the original title was Algorithmi Numero Indorum. And this work was largely based on the work of an Indian mathematician, Brahmagupta, who we mentioned earlier, uh, who lived from 598 to 670, roughly. There isn't always consensus about the order in which Al Khwarizmi wrote his books because the historical record is unclear, but we do know that the book on Hindu numerals came after the compendious book on calculation by completion and balancing because it refers to the algebra in that volume. Yeah, it refers to that earlier book. Uh, And you likely noticed a similarity between the first word of the Latin title, algorithmi, and the word algorithm, and that is absolutely no accident. Uh, Algorithm came from the translation of Al Khwarizmi's name, so he's responsible for two pretty big, fundamental, important words in mathematics. This book introduced the Indian numerical system into the Arabic world, and eventually to a greater audience. 
It features the numerals 1 through 9 plus the concept of zero. Zero as an idea had been toyed with by a few different cultures by this time, including the Maya and the Babylonians. So it's not as though Al-Khwarizmi just invented it out of whole cloth, but his translated texts identifying it in the Indian mathematical system made their way across Europe in the 12th century and helped cement the concept of a numeral to represent nothing. Yeah, there wasn't always a zero in computation. Nope. And if you're into the cultural identity of zero and its place in history, which is to me really fascinating, uh, there's a great book that I highly recommend called The Nothing That Is, A Natural History of Zero, and it's written by Robert Kaplan. Uh, I didn't really use it as a source for this, so it's not going to be in the source notes, but I wanted to mention it. I think we have How Zero Works as an article on How Stuff Works also. We do. Additionally, the Indian concept of decimal numbers is discussed in the book and eventually leads to the idea spreading as the work is translated and shared. Uh, once again, this is an idea that had been blossoming in other places, including China. Yeah, I mean, he uh, neither Brahmagupta nor Al-Khwarizmi were really the first to recognize that we needed some way to identify smaller parts of things, but this really kind of gave it a, a, a foothold in mathematical texts. And while we're focusing on mathematics and uh, how Al-Khwarizmi contributed to that field, we should also take a quick moment to discuss his work in geography and astronomy. A writing entitled Kitab Surat al-Arid, which translates to The Image of the Earth, was a geography book based largely on the work of Ptolemy in his book Geographia. Al-Khwarizmi built on what Ptolemy had established by calculating significantly improved measurements for several parts of the globe. And the Arabic scholar was also instrumental in creating what was one of the first world maps. His astronomy work encompassed calendars, the positions of he heavenly bodies, and even eclipse calculations. He compiled a book of astronomical tables, which was translated into multiple languages, including Chinese. Uh, and before we talk about sort of how his work spread through Europe, we're going to take a quick pause for a moment and talk about uh, our sponsor, Lumosity. It is no big secret that it is important to exercise so that your body stays healthy. And you will often, you know, train specific areas of your body so that you can build strength and stamina. You can work on your agility, etc. But most of us don't realize that we could be stimulating our brains through exercise, too, and doing similar targeted training. And that's why uh, we love to play the brain games at Lumosity.com. They're scientifically designed to train your memory. They can challenge your attention and problem-solving skills. And the best part is they're actually genuinely fun. And it's really easy to get started. You just sign up at Lumosity.com to create your personalized brain training program and begin playing those games. It just takes a few minutes a day. And like we said, you can train this specific... Uh, elements of your thinking that you really want to work on. And over time, you'll be able to track your progress online. You'll be able to compare your performance to others. And you can play it, this is my favorite part, from anywhere. You can play Lumosity on your iPhone or your iPad with the free app. I'm always singing the virtues of the app because I find it so handy to uh, play the games when I'm on the run. Sometimes when I'm at the grocery store and my beloved is taking a long time deciding what he wants, I will sit there and do a Lumosity game really quickly. So I really, really enjoy it. And right now you can check out our special Lumosity page to get started. You just go to lumosity.com slash stuff, click on the start training button, and then you'll be playing your first game. That's lumosity.com slash stuff. And we hope you have fun. And now back to the topic at hand. So back to Al-Khwarizmi. 
Yeah, Al-Khwarizmi died in 850, uh, so he never saw the introduction of his work to the European scholarly community. There's not much in the way of record of what he died from. He's believed to have died in Baghdad, where he had been living, but Mm -hmm. that's kind of all we know. Robert of Chester, who was an Englishman working in Spain at the time, translated Al-Khwarizmi's algebra text in the 1140s, and this translation with a very lengthy intro is on archive.org, and we will put it in the show notes. It, as well as Al-Khwarizmi's other work, was also translated by Gerard of Cremona around 1150 and Guglielmo de Lunis around 1250. And once it was translated, Al-Khwarizmi's work became a significant influence on the European development of mathematics. And it was used as a standard textbook on algebra throughout Europe well into the 16th century. What made the introduction of algebra into Europe at this time so significant is that it moved away from the geometry-based mathematics of Greece. And it also expanded the mathematical landscape significantly. So rational and irrational numbers were welcome at the algebra table. And that allowed math to flourish in new ways. Yeah, it kind of just was a whole new gear of thinking about math and how numbers could be used. And I feel like I should mention a thing that I discovered while I was researching that was unbeknownst to me before uh, we had gotten into this topic. There are some very vehement folks in the world uh, with internet presences who really, really want to discredit Al-Khwarizmi's contributions. And they're coming at it from an anti-Islamic mindset. And they seem to use the fact that Al-Khwarizmi was building on the work of mathematicians that came before him as some sort of like gotcha, like they caught him plagiarizing And it kind of ignores the fact that virtually every line of academic research and discovery builds on what has come before and preceded it. And also the fact that sometimes certain concepts are developing independently in multiple places and cultures at one time or even at different times, but that aren't communicated. And I wanted to bring this up as I found it very troubling. Yeah. And it's really bizarre because some of these are kind of cloaked in a seeming academia layout like i would find these websites that i was like oh this is interesting and i'm trying to fact check it and some of this checks out and then it would suddenly become like sort of really racist and weird yeah and very like this proves that nothing good ever came from this part of the world and i'm like whoa whoa whoa, back no. up the truck what is going on here well and i alluded to listener mail that we get like that sometimes in a recent when we were discussing uh the response to our crucifixion episode yeah a couple of episodes back um we will get listener emails from people sometimes who are wanting us they like want us to debunk the contributions of George Washington Carver because he was really building on the work of people who came before him and I'm like okay number one that sounds extremely racist when you say that number two all scientists are building on the work of the people who came before them that is how science works like there are extremely few discoveries that come from a bolt from the blue and yeah eureka moments are far and few between even when they are eureka moments they're eureka moments as the saying goes from on the shoulders of giants they're not from nowhere (laughs) yeah yeah so it was very i mean i was actually quite startled at some of it um because it it really the focus is so laser sharp that they really wanted to prove that the Arab world contributed to mathematics. Now, I will say this, there are debates among modern math historians about how much of Al-Khwarizmi's work was original, how much of it was uh, taken directly from Indian and Greek scholars who preceded him. But I feel like that doesn't take away the historical significance of his works, 
whether they were, you know, how much was him building on things and how much of him was repeating things, these were still really important texts that spread through Europe and really changed the way people looked at numbers. Yeah. So they're significant in that regard, regardless of whether he was using the work of other people. Well, and we also have other historical figures who, like, their their role in the world of history was archiving and preserving other language or other discoveries for later generations. Like, a, a lot of uh, Alexandria's scholars weren't really putting out new discoveries of their own. They're notable for having preserved all of this stuff. Yeah. And that has value. Yeah. Yeah, it was just, uh, it struck me... It took me by so by surprise and struck me as so odd and troubling that I wanted to mention it, particularly if any of our listeners, I know our listeners like us usually like to research things on their own. And should you run across this, I want you to be prepared. <laughs> it is out there and you will find it accidentally and then be like, what? This took a left turn. Yeah. Uh, so always be smart. So do you have listener mail? I do. I sort of have a few different ones um, that I'll... Some I'm not reading all of them, but I wanted to discuss a couple of them because there were several that kind of popped up that were either short or had something interesting. And I, I feel bad because when we only do one per episode, that's hundreds and hundreds that never get a moment. So. Right. Uh, first, ours from our listener, Nancy, uh, who said, I just listened to the crucifixion episode and your conversation about mimeographing and that memorable smell, which led me to search the internet for more information about this, since the only smell I remember from my mimeograph tests is a paper smell. And after a little digging, I discovered that the smelly machine was actually the spirit duplicator, a.k.a. the ditto machine. And apparently the mimeograph did not produce that smell. Yeah, I think people are using the words interchangeably. I know I I am. I do. Uh, but I, it didn't even occur to me that there's a separation of the two. Yeah. Well, and now I wonder which exact machine, whether it was a colloquial use of mimeograph or whether it was an actual mimeograph Yeah. Machine. And she also says that she's glad that as a teacher today, we have photocopiers. Yes. Well, uh, and we also got uh, somebody on Twitter was like, hey, mimeograph is still around. Yes. I make them. And I said, I, I said, genuine question. Who is buying mimeograph nowadays? I love the answer. The tattoo industry. It makes complete sense because they'll usually do like the someone who knows more about tattoos will know this better than I. But they do the like um, sort of test version that they'll transfer Mm -hmm. on before they actually ink. And I'm sure that's part of that. Yeah. So. So cool. Uh, And also, thank you for being a teacher, Nancy. That's a thankless job and it's very hard yeah and my second one is also from a teacher that i just wanted to call out because i love teachers okay it's funny because i feel like talking about math today some of uh my favorite teachers looking back on high school specifically were math teachers even though i was probably the biggest pain in their butt because i didn't understand what was going on half the time and i think i kept getting put in classes for advanced mathematics to keep my best friend who was a total brainiac happy mm-hmm. and i was like this struggling monster <laughs> it was, i was like the bull in the china shop of mathematics i was there like no. i don't understand any of this but i had so many great teachers who would really take time and and really cared about their jobs and they were amazing so thank you all uh, but we also got a letter from a teacher named Colleen but she has taught high school french for 20 years and loves her job those That's two awesome. things together are like magic. I think you're a unicorn, Colleen, because 20 years and still loving your job is cool. And also, yay for teaching French. I probably uh, horrify you many times um, with my awkward uh, pronunciation, which used to be, I think, much better. And I have gotten quite rusty. And our third listener mail is from our listener, Bill. And this is the last one. 
And he says, one of the episodes that really inspired me while listening was the two-part Lions of Tsavo podcast. The unfortunate circumstances and often ridiculous situations that Patterson found himself in while hunting these beasts led to a one-act play, which I've just finished writing. I went out of my way to see the film adaptation when was not impressed with the liberties they took in telling the story. They do, of course, play up certain things for drama and add in a whole romantical thing that happens. Mm -hmm. I know that's not a real word. Um, And he says, I'm currently looking for smaller venues in Chicago to workshop the play, but I thought I would share my story of inspiration and I look forward to more episodes. Bill, that's so cool. I hope you keep us updated on how your play goes because I love it. I'm thinking about ways you would stage that involving lions, but then I think it's done. Indoor running of the bulls. It's (laughs) indoor. Yes. And then, of course, I think of um, Julie Taymor's designs for The Lion King, which is a much different and bigger, you know, thing than a, a one act. But I, I do hope he keeps us posted. And if it gets staged, that we'll get pictures or something because it sounds fabulous. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history, on Twitter at history, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history. We are also happily still tagging all of our uh, episodes on our still fairly newish website, which is mistinhistory.com. As of this episode, we are halfway through the tag. Woo! Tracy is really like the champion of tags. I do a couple here and there when they come up, especially when someone emails us and asks about an episode that that already exists that mm-hmm. they haven't found because we don't have the tags. I'll seek it out sometimes, but you're the champion of all things. Uh, <laughs> and if you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to howstuffworks.com and type in the word math and you will come up with an article called How Math Works, which was written by uh, Robert of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Yeah. And it is a very cool article. And if you would like to learn about math or anything else that your mind can conjure, because I know not everybody loves the math, you can do that at howstuffworks.com as well. more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC... Mac or write to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial member. Mendez versus Westminster episode, which was about the segregation of Mexican American children in Southern California schools. Uh, so it's it fits a little with what we're talking about today. So Amelia says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I just listened to the Mendez versus Westminster podcast and was reminded of one of my favorite undergraduate history classes, African American History 1865 to Present, which covered many, many topics related to segregation, desegregation, and legalized discrimination. It was the first class I took that required me to memorize Supreme Court cases. I was an art major before embracing history and getting a master's in it. At any rate, this podcast reminded me of one of the cases we had to memorize, Lum v. Rice, 1927, which clearly influenced Mendez v. Westminster and not in a good way. A Chinese-American father sued to have his daughter attend the local white school in Mississippi by the logic that since they weren't black, she shouldn't have to attend the black school, which was poorly funded. 
Unfortunately for the Lum family, they lost, with the court saying that since Martha Lum was not white, she couldn't attend the white school. I've always been curious about the background of the case and the family. She has in parentheses, how does a Chinese-American family end up in Mississippi in the 1920s? And what became of them? Perhaps a suggestion for a future podcast. Keep up the good work. Uh, and then she says that she listens to our podcast while rehabbing our home, and we've distracted her from the crummy jobs like pulling carpet staples from the wood floors and fixing window stashes. Oh, I hate pulling carpet staples. And I said window stashes when I should have said sashes. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Amelia. There were so many cases that were precursors to uh, Mendez versus Westminster yeah. that I kept having to like trim some of them out and, and selectively figure out which ones to talk about because the, there were lots yeah, I I know that myself, I lose that sense of how many of these types of incidents were going on leading up to desegregation, that there were lots of these little pockets of individuals that were trying to figure out the best way to, you know, raise their family and live their lives. And they kind of get lost in the bigger picture kind of quick version that you often get. Yeah. Well, and that's a good segue to where we're going to leave off for our next episode, because one of the... Uh, one of the things before the civil rights movement was that there were a lot of people who were working on civil rights issues. Most of them before the Montgomery bus boycott did not think they were going to see a whole lot of action on it in their lifetimes. Um, So we will talk more about that in our next episode. If you would like to write to us on this or anything else, we're at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and our Pinterest is pinterest.com slash History. If you would like to learn more about this, you can come to our website and put the words Rosa Parks into our search bar and you will find our article on how the civil rights movement worked. You can do all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Lynda.com. You can learn it at Lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials that teach software, creative, and business skills. Membership starts at $25 a month and provides unlimited 24-7 access to top-quality video courses taught by expert instructors with real-world experience. Listeners of Stuff You Missed in History Class can try Lynda.com free for seven Welcome days. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We are going to spend a few episodes over the next few weeks talking about the two Supreme Court cases that uh, sort of, in a way, bookended segregation in the United States. In Plessy versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court ruled that segregation was legal as long as the separate facilities were equal. And then, many years later... Brown versus Board of Education overturned Plessy versus Ferguson and found that school segregation was unconstitutional. That decision was such a big deal and was so monumental and led to such a huge backlash that we're actually going to split that part of the conversation into two episodes later down the road. So those two facts about Plessy versus Ferguson and Brown versus Board 
uh, are things that most people who have studied the civil rights movement or United States history in any way are pretty familiar with. But uh, I think for me and for you both, uh, both of us, uh, and probably a lot of other people, the names of the cases and what they did is the the beginning and the end of the conversation. Like, I had no idea what the story was behind how these cases came to be or any of that until I really got into researching them for these episodes. So that's why we're going to spend some time on this, to talk about who the people were involved uh, in Plessy versus Ferguson and Brown versus Board and sort of the journey that these cases took to come to the Supreme Court in the first place. So the context that we're going to start with today is actually the U.S. Civil War. There are people who will argue that the Civil War was not fought over slavery, that it was about states' rights or economics. And while states' rights and economics were certainly involved, the primary rights in question uh, were the right to own slaves and the right to travel freely with slaves into states where slavery was illegal. The primary economic factor at issue was that the Southern economy really relied on slavery in labor-intensive industries, such as cotton farming. You could also make the argument that the Civil War was fought over, over neither of those two things, that it was fought because the North wanted to preserve the union of the states, but the South wanted to secede from that union. And while, strictly speaking, this is also true, the big factor that was driving states to, to secede, which was specifically cited in the declarations of causes that were issued by uh, Georgia, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Texas, was slavery. And this is all relevant, because after the Union won the war in 1865, slavery was abolished in the places where it was still legal. And the federal government tried to rebuild the Southern infrastructure and encourage racial equality in a period that became known as the Reconstruction. Three amendments were added to the United States Constitution as part of this effort. The 13th Amendment formally abolished slavery. The 14th Amendment granted citizenship to anyone who was born in the United States or nationalized, which included former slaves. And the 15th Amendment read, in part, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. There was a lot more going on during Reconstruction. All of the twists and turns could easily be their own whole series of episodes. But to make an extremely long story short, the South overall resented the largely Northern pressure to free slaves and give them the right to vote. This was especially true as black officials were elected to office in the South, and for a brief period of time, some progress was made towards racial equality. As the southern states were readmitted to the Union and the federal government had less influence on how those states were run, the states started passing laws that restricted African Americans' right to vote by basically taking advantage of the fact that most of them had been slaves. And during their time as slaves, they had not been allowed to learn to read or write or to earn money or to hold property. So new laws required that in order to vote, people had to pass a literacy test or pay a poll tax or own property, something that, in general, uh, white people in the South could do much more easily than black people could. Some of these tests were also virtually unpassable, but were only required for black voters. With their right to vote restricted, black Americans lost many of their prior gains in terms of representation in the government. Afterwards, states, both southern states and border states, enacted segregation laws that became known as Jim Crow laws, which separated black and white citizens in everything from hospitals to water fountains. 
Just the name Jim Crow was an insult. It came from a heavily stereotypical character in minstrel shows. These laws were enforced not just through the usual means of making arrests and bringing people to trial, but also through a social structure that insisted that black people be subservient to white people. The laws were also enforced more directly through intimidation and violence, up to and including murder. White supremacy organizations like the Ku Klux Klan really flourished, and violence against black citizens at the hand of white citizens became both commonplace and rarely prosecuted. Uh, Before we get into talking about a Jim Crow law and how it led to a Supreme Court ruling that legalized segregation, do you want to have a word from a sponsor? Sure. Stupendous. So when you have an amazing idea for something awesome... A lot of times you need to go snag a domain name and web hosting and then you can get the ball rolling immediately so you don't lose that creative energy for whatever your idea is. And Domain.com's quick domain discovery system and easy checkout process makes it so easy to get a website up and running in no time. We've talked about it here before. Domain.com makes it easy to get your website up and running so you can blog, you can create a new website, you can show off your creative projects, you can sell stuff if that's what you're about. And there is just so much that you can do. Domain.com is affordable, reliable, and easy to use. Plus, if you run into trouble, they're online on Twitter. You can talk to them at Domain.com. And you can get 15% off their already affordable prices. So you can get domain names, web hosting, or email when you use coupon code HISTORY at Domain.com's checkout. That is coupon code HISTORY at Domain.com's checkout. So when you think domain names, think Domain.com. So to return to the story of Plessy versus Ferguson, one example of these Jim Crow laws was Louisiana's separate car law. And this law was to, quote, promote the comfort of passengers on their trains by providing, quote, equal but separate accommodations for the white and colored races. So anyone who boarded a car in Louisiana that was not meant for their race could be fined or jailed. Interracial couples were not exempt from the law, nor were black maids and servants who were traveling with white employers. Really, the only exception was nurses who were taking care of children of another race. This was signed into law on July 10, 1890. Thanks to its sizable black population, including slaves, free slaves, and Creoles of color, and to the Union's presence in New Orleans during much of the Civil War, New Orleans had become home to a large population of affluent, politically active black citizens. When the separate car law was passed, activists in New Orleans set to work immediately trying to put together a plan to challenge it. On September 1st, 1891... 18 prominent black and Creole New Orleans citizens formed the Citizens Committee to test the constitutionality of the separate car law, or the Comité des Citoyens. They got legal help from a white lawyer named Albion W. Tourget, who was from New York and had been an abolitionist. Tourget waived his fees, and he promised to argue the case before the Supreme Court should it make it all the way there. Since Tourget was both very busy and also very far away from Louisiana, They also had the help of a local lawyer named James C. Walker. The committee settled on a strategy of civil disobedience. They would find someone to break the separate car law and get arrested, and then they would take the case through the court system. This, they hoped, would lead to overturning segregation, not just on Louisiana trains, but in all of the United States. Then they started looking for volunteers who the law would consider to be colored, but who looked white. 
Legal distinctions about who was considered to be part of which race really varied from state to state and through the years. And as a general rule, particularly in the South, the law required smaller and smaller amounts of African-American ancestry to be considered colored. And eventually this came down to the one drop rule, meaning that in a lot of places, if a person had one drop of African blood, that person was considered to be black. Candidates had to be law-abiding citizens with good reputations, people who would not be dismissed as disreputable, and who had nothing in their background that could, be, uh, that could become an easy excuse for not taking their case seriously. Their first attempt to break the separate car law was made by a man named Daniel DeDunes, and he was a musician. He was also the son of one of the members of the committee, and he was one-eighth black. He boarded the first-class car of a train on February 24, 1892, and then he told the conductor that he was colored. He was removed from the train and arrested. But before the case could go to trial, the charges against him were dismissed because the state Supreme Court ruled in a different case that state segregation laws couldn't apply to interstate travel. Daydune's tickets had been to Mobile, Alabama, so per the Louisiana Supreme Court, that ride was regulated by federal law and not state law. The committee had actually chosen an interstate ticket on purpose because they were hoping to draw on interstate commerce laws in the case. The committee tried again, and this time the man breaking the law was Homer Plessy, a 30-year-old shoemaker. He was also one-eighth African-American. One of his great-grandmothers had been black, and he had skin light enough that he would not be questioned boarding the car. He bought his first-class ticket to Covington, Louisiana, on the East Louisiana Railroad so that the whole trip would take place within the borders of the state. Nobody raised any questions when Plessy boarded the first-class car, and different accounts vary in exactly how the conductor came to know that he was legally a colored man and in the wrong place. In some of the versions, Plessy just told him. And in others, the conductor asked because he knew that the committee was sending someone to test the segregation law that day. And in others, the conductor asked everyone in the car because it was part of his job to confirm the race of all passengers and that everyone was in the correct uh, car on the train. Regardless of how it played out and this information came to light, the train's conductor, J.J. Dowling, asked Homer Plessy to leave the train after learning his race. And even though the law designated separate but equal cars, there was not actually a car for black passengers on the train that day. Plessy refused. He was arrested by a private detective hired by the committee and jailed. Members of the Citizens Committee pooled their money to bail Plessy out. Plessy's trial was set for October 13th of 1892. James Walker, who we mentioned earlier, argued that his arrest violated the 13th and 14th Amendments to the Constitution. Previous court rulings had expanded on the interpretation of the 13th Amendment not just to include literal slavery, but also, quote, badges of slavery and servitude, which is how an amendment that was set up to abolish slavery was being uh, applied to the matter of being segregated on a train. But Lionel Adams, the attorney for the prosecution, argued that the Separate Car Act reduced racial tension, and so it was actually good for the state. He also argued that because the separate cars were equal, it was not discriminatory to separate people into them by their race. Although we're not clear on how that applied, given that there was reportedly no actual car for black passengers on that particular train. Judge John H. Ferguson ruled in favor of the prosecution on November the 18th. 
And the next step in the case was the appeal. But again, we're going to pause for a second for a word from a sponsor before we dig into all of that juicy material. Uh, Getting mailing and shipping done, not so much on the list of delights for most people. It can seem kind of like a no-win situation. You have to go to the post office, which takes up time. If you want to get a postage meter for your small business that you're maybe running out of your home or your your small office, that is expensive. There are multi-year commitments. You have to worry about fees. But fortunately, there is a much simpler way to handle these needs, and that is stamps.com. You'll be able to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right there at your desk. Just use your own computer and printer, and you are set. You will even get special postage discounts that you are not going to be able to get at the post office. Plus... Stamps.com is, uh, frankly, more powerful than a postage meter. It's just a fraction of the cost as well. And you can save up to 80% of what you would spend if you were leasing a postage meter. And you will not have to take your things to the post office. So right now, you can use our promo code, which is STUFF, to get your hands on a special offer. And that's a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer. It's going to get you a digital scale so you can always calculate perfect postage and up to $55 worth of free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, though, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, type in that promo code STUFF, that is Stamps.com, and enter STUFF. So let's let's get back to the story, which at this point is going to go to the Supreme Court. Plessy's case went to the Louisiana Supreme Court first, which heard it on November the 22nd of that year. The arguments were essentially the same as what had been argued in the court before, and in what came as a surprise to no one, the court ruled that the law was not discriminatory because it applied equally to everyone. It would actually be four years before the case would get to the U.S. Supreme Court. And as he had promised when originally agreeing to work with the Citizens Committee, Albion Tourget planned to argue the case before the Supreme Court. Rather than appealing immediately, he actually decided to take some time to try to raise funds for the case and work out his strategy. In addition to that, he and the committee were also hoping that by delaying a little bit, they would find themselves before a court that would see their case more favorably. Based on decisions that the court had already issued, justices in 1892 were really not very likely to find that the, that the separate car law was unconstitutional. The precedent was just not running in favor of this case. So the committee crossed their fingers that some of the justices would be replaced before they submitted their own case. And in 1895, two Supreme Court justices died and new appointees took their place. However, this did not look much better for Plessy and the Citizens Committee than the previous court had. One of the new justices was a former Confederate soldier, and the other had a reputation for being quite conservative. The new court also set an immediate precedent of upholding other Jim Crow laws. Plus, in just those couple of years, the overall racial climate in the United States had gotten worse instead of better. So, in spite of the fact that things seemed to be kind of running against them, Torje submitted the case, which he prepared along with Walker and Samuel F. Phillips, and he submitted it for review toward the end of 1895. The Supreme Court heard the case, which was now known as Plessy versus Ferguson, in 1896. In the written briefs and oral arguments, Tourget and team argued that the separate car law was unconstitutional in several ways, including the following. And this is very much an abridged list, but first up, it violated the 14th Amendment from several different angles, 
by giving white citizens and colored citizens different rights and protections under the law. Second, while proponents of the law claimed that it was for the comfort of both black and white passengers, Tourget argued that it was really for the comfort of white passengers at the expense of black passengers, and therefore discriminatory. He also argued that the law violated the 14th Amendment's due process clause by giving train conductors the power of law enforcement while giving train passengers no legal recourse about decisions the conductors made. And last, uh, that it created conditions of subjection and inferiority, which previous court decisions had interpreted to be in violation of the 13th Amendment. Representing Louisiana's side was Alexander Peter Morse, whose legal specialty was federal appeals. He argued that the separate car law was designed to prevent problems and serve the common good. So rather than making African-American passengers second-class citizens, according to him, it actually protected them from harassment and discrimination by white passengers. He also noted several prior cases in which the Supreme Court had had upheld states' rights in the matter of segregation. And he said that the rights at issue in the separate car law were not civil rights at all. They were social rights, which are not constitutionally protected. The Supreme Court announced its decision on May 18th of 1896. Justice David J. Brewer excused himself from participating because his daughter had just died, and the remaining eight judges upheld the constitutionality of the separate car law in a seven-to-one ruling. Henry Billings Brown wrote the majority opinion, which dismissed the idea that the separate car law violated the 13th Amendment entirely. He also cited several cases in which the court had upheld states' rights to segregate, and he dismissed the idea that providing separate facilities was inherently discriminatory. This is a thing he wrote on that point. We consider the underlying fallacy of the plaintiff's argument to consist in the assumption that the enforced separation of the two races stamps the colored race with a badge of inferiority. If this be so, it is not by reason of anything found in the act, but solely because the colored race chooses to put that construction upon it. So uh, it goes on to say that if, quote, the colored race became the majority in the state legislature and enacted the same law, that white people would not think themselves inferior because of it. This was the point where I had to stop reading Supreme Court rulings and take a little break. (laughs) That's probably for the best in terms of your uh, mental stability. (laughs) There's a lot that's really offensive in in the whole majority opinion and and the part where it's like this. You guys are making a big deal out of it. This is on you, not on us. That was the part that made me like things feel like they haven't changed very much because this feels like the stop playing the race card of the late 19th century. Yep. So the sole dissenter in all of this was John Marshall Harlan, who went against the majority with so much vigor that he became known as the great dissenter. His dissent accurately predicted what was going to happen next, which was that states were going to use this ruling as a justification to enact a whole lot more segregation laws uh, and to be more blatantly discriminatory, feeling like they had the backing of the Supreme Court in doing so. One of his statements goes like this, quote, In my opinion, the judgment this day rendered will, in time, prove to be quite as pernicious as the decision made by this tribunal in the Dred Scott case. 
So if you're not familiar with that one, uh, that's Dred Scott versus Sanford, when Dred Scott, who was a slave, sued for his freedom, and the court decided that anyone with African ancestry, whether they were a slave or free, was not intended to be a citizen of the United States, and therefore was not entitled to bring such a suit in federal court. The court also ruled that the federal government couldn't prohibit slavery in territory that it had acquired after the United States was founded. Harlan's dissent also argues strenuously against the idea that segregation was good for race relations. To quote, 60 millions of whites are in no danger from the presence here of 8 millions of blacks. The destinies of the two races in this country are indissolubly linked together, and the interests of both require that the common government of all shall not permit the seeds of race hate to be planted under the sanction of law. What can more certainly arouse race hate? What more certainly create and perpetuate a feeling of distrust between these races than state enactments which, in fact, proceed on the ground that colored citizens are so far inferior and degraded that they cannot be allowed to sit in public coaches occupied by white citizens? That, as all will admit, is the real meaning of such legislation as was enacted in Louisiana." Yeah, his whole tone is basically, uh, it's completely obvious to everyone that the intent here is to subjugate an entire race of people, and upholding this law is going to make it so much worse. Today, Plessy versus Ferguson is a pretty infamous and notorious Supreme Court case, but at the time it really did not make a lot of big news. The reaction of a lot of the media and of the majority as a whole was sort of, well, obviously... Um, Afterward, though, states really did begin passing more and more segregation laws. And in spite of the ruling being based on the idea that things were separate but equal, a lot of these separate facilities were not equal at all. They were often massively and deliberately inferior from the facilities for white people. And a lot of people interpreted this ruling to mean that all discrimination in everything was legal, not just the separation of races into two separate but supposedly equal facilities. And while most of these laws were passed in the South, this was not exclusively a Southern phenomenon. 20% of the segregation laws in the United States were in the North, Midwest, and the West. And it also was not just about segregating African Americans. In states with sizable populations of Asians, Mexicans, and Native Americans, for example, these populations were segregated from the white population as well. Since the Supreme Court had upheld the previous verdict, Homer Plessy then appeared before Judge Ferguson in Louisiana one more time on on January 11th, 1897. This was to plead guilty and to pay his fine for violating the separate car law. He spent the rest of his life working as a laborer and then a clerk, and then eventually he became an insurance salesman for an African-American-owned insurance company. Homer Plessy died on March 1st of 1925. It would be almost 60 years before this decision was overturned. And... We are going to talk about that uh, in another episode. And then in another episode after that, we're going to talk about what happened after it was overturned. And I'm going to change courses completely to talk about some listener mail. So this listener mail is from Neely. And Neely says, hello, Holly and Tracy. I love the podcast and have wanted an excuse to be able to write and include pics of my fur babies. I lived in Anchorage for 2.5 years, and my husband was born and raised in Homer, Alaska. His grandma homesteaded there in Fairbanks and likes to tell everyone she voted against becoming a state. 
I wanted to give you a quick correction on the start of the Iditarod. The ceremonial start is in Anchorage during Fur Rondi, but this is just the mushers coming through town and being announced. The actual race start is in Willow, Alaska. This is a common fact misquoted when the race is discussed. I also wanted to give you a few other fun facts. When you mentioned that you felt sorry for the musher, who only had a 50-degree hut to warm in, I assure you it probably felt like a sauna. I remember a two-week spell in Anchorage when it didn't get above negative 10. One morning, I was walking to my car in my warmest gear and had to change into a light fleece because it was just much too warm. I got to my car to see that much too warm was four degrees. It was really all relative. Also, Google Fur Rondi. That is a hilariously Alaskan event that includes not only the ceremonial race start, but furball, snowshoe football, and the running of the reindeer. Think running of the bulls, only reindeer are pretty chill, so they kind of just wander behind wondering what those crazy humans are doing. Another random gnome fact from my Alaska native friend from Nome, you may want to fact check, the town is named Nome because on a census report that asked for the name, it was written none because it was too small for a name. It was misread as Nome, and thus Nome is Nome. Uh, and then Neely sends some ep- episode suggestions. Uh, I did find that Nome fact in a couple of places, but the reason it didn't make it into the episode is that I similarly had a hard time uh, substantiating whether that was actually true. But the reason that I wanted to read this email is that not very long after the Gnome Serum Run podcast aired, I had the experience of having to take a 15-minute walk in a 20-degree below zero windchill. Uh, and I went from that 20 or 15, however many minutes, some minutes, not that long, actually, uh, into an apartment that was 72 degrees. And I was immediately sweltering. And my absolute first thought was, yeah, yeah 50 degrees, that was fine. <laughs> that guy on the serum run. So if you would like to write to us about this or any other episode, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Our Facebook is Facebook.com slash Missed in History. And our Twitter is Missed in History. Our Tumblr is Missed in History.tumblr.com. And we're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash Missed in History. We also have a Spreadshirt store at Missed in History.spreadshirt.com where you can find shirts and other cool stuff. If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, come to our parent company's website, uh, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and put the word Plessy in the search bar, and you will find an article called 10 Overturned Supreme Court Cases, which talks about this one in addition to nine others. You can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, to see an archive of every episode we have ever done. Show notes for every episode Holly and I have ever done. Hey, everybody. Just a quick note before we get started with today's episode. We recorded this one before the June 17th, 2015 attack on Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. That mass shooting put the former colony of Rhodesia in the national spotlight in the United States. We mentioned Rhodesia in this episode almost as an aside. That was a coincidence, and we definitely would have approached it differently if we had recorded even a couple of days later. So, if you get to our brief mention of Rhodesia and wonder why we didn't include a more thorough or detailed explanation, that's why. Our focus was really on Australia as we were preparing this episode. And a full episode related to Rhodesia will be coming in the near future. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. 
A lot of our listeners probably like the BBC drama called The Midwife. I know I like it very much. It is, for those who are not familiar, set in the impoverished neighborhood of Poplar in London's East End in the 1950s and 60s. And it tells the story of these nuns and midwives uh, who are basically providing health care and delivering babies. Uh, in people's homes. And it's based on the memoirs of Jennifer Worth, who was one of the midwives who did this work during this time period. So every episode of Call the Midwife tells these stories of women in their neighborhood and lots of babies and uh, and family stories. But because of when they're set, they are also peppered with horrific other happenings in the world. Um, there are stories of women who have survived workhouses and the eugenics movement, there are ones about teenage mothers who had their babies taken away from them without their consent or the chance to say goodbye. One of the most recent episodes that aired in the U.S., I was literally yelling at my television to a pregnant woman who was having extreme morning sickness, don't take that, it's thalidomide, because we know now thalidomide caused many, many children to be born without their limbs and with all kinds of other physical problems. For the most part, when like when Call the Midwife drops one of these things on the viewer, I know that story already, right? I already knew about workhouses and teenage moms who had their babies taken away and all this stuff. Uh, but there's one episode that alluded to a horror that was entirely news to me. It's the first episode of the most recent season, which is series four. It's about a family of four young children who have just been woefully neglected, neglected by their mother. And the oldest one is trying to look after the siblings, but he's just a little boy. Uh, in the end, they are taken from their mother's care. The baby, who uh, was just in very horrible condition from all this neglect, was adopted by another family. Um, and then the uh, rest of the children are sent to Australia as part of the child migrants program, where, uh, according to Vanessa Redgrave's narration, they faced a life of hard labor. And then I was like, "I'm wait, I'm sorry, the what? <laughs> the what program are we talking about right now? Then I basically tweeted that I just wanted to thank Call the Midwife for telling me some horrible thing from the past that I didn't know about that now I was going to have to do a podcast episode on because that's exactly what happened. We have before on the show talked about a number of government attempts to populate their various colonies throughout uh, encouraged or more accurately forced migrations before. Uh, in the fairly recent archives, we have episodes on Les Filles du Roi, who were the women sent to New France, which is now Canada, as potential wives in the hope that they would even out the gender ratio and boost population there. And we've also talked about the Lady Juliana, which was a ship of female prisoners sent on a similar mission from Britain to Australia. And in the U.S., uh, there were the orphan trains, which transported children, some of which were orphans, some of which were not, from densely populated cities in the east to country out west, where they would have, it was hoped, a better life. So the Fille du Roi migrated in the late 17th century. The Lady Juliana sailed in 1789. The orphan trains ran in the United States from the 1850s until 1929, although that last train only carried three children on it. In Britain, uh, child migration efforts started as early as the 1600s, when children were sent to the American colony of Virginia. It was about 100 children. But these efforts didn't really get going until the 1800s. From then until the 1920s, about 100,000 children were sent from the British Isles to Canada to live. 
For the most part, these Canadian children were sent through processing centers, and then they were divided by gender. Boys went to farms to do farm work, and girls went to homes to act as domestic servants. So this phase of child migration from Britain did have some things in common with the orphan train movement that uh, we've had a whole episode on. Uh, People thought that the children were going to be better off in their new circumstances, that they were getting access to a better life than they would have had in an institution uh, in Britain, and that they were also learning to work in their new placements. But in reality, British children sent to Canada wound up doing manual labor for little to no money. Once in Canada, home children, as they came to be known, were usually stigmatized and they were treated as second-class citizens, regardless of whether they were working on a farm or in a home or somewhere else. So much so that many of them hid this part of their childhood when they became adults. It's estimated that a little more than 10% of Canada's population is actually descended from child migrants. Uh, I kept finding a statistic that more than half of these children had also been abused in some way, but I could not figure out how that statistic was determined. Uh, and some of the children who were sent to Canada did wind up back in orphanages and other institutions when uh, placements for them could not be found in homes and farms and other places. So in these cases, children had basically been sent from one institution to another institution, with the second one being on the other side of an entire ocean. So they basically lost the connections they'd had to friends and family and the people who were caring for them where they came from to have to start all over somewhere on the other side of the world. Many of the surviving British child migrants to Canada were tracked down in the 1980s. And by that point, the ones that were still alive were elderly, and the stories that they told were also very similar to what we talked about in the Orphan Trains episode. Many had been sent to Canada far too young to really know what was going on, and most were told that their parents had died, but many had siblings, cousins, and other family, all of whom were separated from one another. Child migration efforts from Britain to Canada ended with the Great Depression, but a new wave of migration followed, and this was to Australia and New Zealand. We're going to talk about that more after a brief word from a sponsor. So uh, 90% of your life, Probably spent in underwear for the typical person. Yeah, that seems like a safe bet. Yeah, but uh, wearing the same garments over and over again for that long, they get old pretty fast. Uh, So putting on the, you know, saggy old underwear with the blown out elastic especially is what I hate the worst. Uh, Not so good on your day. Instead, you need to know about MeUndies.com. It is the most comfortable underwear you will ever wear. Just fantastically good. Uh, They fit really well, they don't ride up, and they literally pull moisture away from your body so that you stay cool while you are wearing them. It is like my fancy running shirts, but for underwear. Uh, And, you know, we've talked before about how much we love their t-shirts. Their t-shirts are great for sleeping in. They are cozy and wonderful. Uh, I love to put mine on when I'm in a loungy mood or not feeling very well, so I just feel a little bit better. So they have really great styles for both men and women and cat beds. And they all look great. You can check out photos for yourself at MeUndies.com. And with this kind of quality, normally in a retail store, you'd pay twice what you would pay for MeUndies.com. But since they are cutting out the middleman, you get big savings for yourself. Plus, if you go to MeUndies.com slash history, you'll get 20% off your first order and free shipping. You can save even more if you buy a pack. 
They guarantee that you're going to be happy with them or your first pair is free. So once you get MeUndies on your body, you will not be going back. To get that 20% off, though, you need to go to MeUndies.com slash history. And now we'll get back to our episode. So the Department of Health estimates that in the 19th and 20th centuries, 150,000 child migrants were sent from Britain to other countries. 100,000 of them, as we just talked about before the break, went to Canada. The rest of them went to Australia, New Zealand, and Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. In the wake of World War II, the British Empire feared for the stability of its territory in Australia and New Zealand. Having such an expansive, largely unpopulated territory so far away from Britain, and so much closer to nations with which Britain had just been at war, seemed very threatening. Plus, there were some overall population worries in general. There had been a great loss of life that had come along with the war. And then there was the fact that the white colonists in Australia were basically a minority in that hemisphere. In the words of the Archbishop of Perth in 1938, quote, If we do not supply from our own stock, we are leaving ourselves all the more exposed to the menace of the teeming millions of our neighboring Asiatic races. So, uh, the British government decided to send children to Australia and New Zealand. Australia also invited other European nations to participate in this scheme, and about 100 children came from Malta, but that really seems to be the extent of participation from elsewhere in Europe. About 550 British children were sent to New Zealand and placed in foster homes, although many of those placements turned out to be temporary. They just didn't work out for one reason or another, and... That whole process was not really supervised very well by local authorities or child child welfare organizations once the children were in New Zealand. Many more children were sent to Australia. The British and Australian governments took on this scheme with a collection of religious charities and other charitable organizations, including the Salvation Army, Bernardo's, the Fairbridge Society, and National Children's Homes. There were organizations affiliated with the Roman Catholic Church and the Church of England that also were involved in this plan. So, at least in some cases... There seems to have been a genuine desire to provide a better life for children who were living in poverty or were being neglected or mistreated by their families or were, for some other reason, living in some kind of unsafe condition. So there were definitely people involved in this who were envisioning that these children would have an idyllic life on a farm with warm weather and lots of sunshine once they got to Australia. When you look at the pictures of these children as they're leaving Britain or arriving in Australia, they often look really happy, like they're about to uh, embark on this wonderful adventure. Uh, But the reality was much different. Between the 1930s and 1967, between 7,000 and 10,000 children between the ages of 3 and 14 were moved from Britain to Australia. And they were described in the press at the time as, quote, war orphans. And newspaper coverage praised these efforts as being charitable. But even though they had generally been told that their parents had died, most of these children were not orphans. Many of them were children whose families had fallen on hard times during the war, and they had consequently put their children into care, hoping to come back for them later when they had their their finances under control. Many of them were children of unmarried women and other parents who had placed their children up for adoption and thought that their children had been adopted by families who were going to be better off uh, that way. For the children who still had living families, which was a lot of the children who were sent to Australia, this 
basically deportation was done without their parents' knowledge or consent. So at this point, we have children who were told they were orphans, but in fact they were not, and parents who were told their children were going to be placed with an adoptive family, but in fact they were not. And instead, these children, who were as young as three years old, were sent 12,000 miles away on a sea voyage that took up to 12 weeks, giving them very little hope of ever returning to Britain. To make things worse, once the children were in Australia, there were not families waiting to care for them. That whole plan was pretty much abandoned almost immediately as being too much trouble. They went back into institutions. So for a lot of children, even if they had started out at an institution in Britain, this meant being uprooted from a setting that was familiar where they had relationship with, relationships with staff and other children and being sent to the literal other side of the world once again to start over at a different institution with different staff and different surroundings and different peers living with them. Although some children who were relocated to Australia did well there, many wound up feeling rejected by Britain and never really at home in Australia. A couple of the institutions where these children were placed became notorious for abuse and neglect. In particular, Bindoon Boys Town, which is north of Perth, was literally built by the boys who were to live there. It was heavy manual labor, and they were children. As adults, many of the boys who lived there reported being physically and sexually abused, and this was by far not the only place where abuses were reported, but reports of abuse at Bindoon were widespread and extremely horrifying. So... Apart from the news coverage that had happened as children were being sent, which was generally favorable, this whole process fell out of view for a lot of people for a long time. We're going to talk about when and how that changed after another brief word from a sponsor. Okay. So uh, I don't think it's any uh, big rarity that people are busy these days. It's not like you or I are the only busy people on the planet. And frankly, often the last thing most people want to do after they have been through a full work day is truck it to the grocery store pick out some ingredients, schlep that home, and make an actual meal out of it. And it can be really expensive and unhealthy if you give in to your um, natural urges to get takeout, which I have a lot of, but I resist them. And that's where Blue Apron can really save your day. Blue Apron is going to deliver farm-fresh ingredients and step-by-step recipes for your home, so you're going to be able to create healthy, handcrafted meals right there in your own kitchen without having to mess with trips to the grocery store or hucking around your stuff. So, for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron is going to get you fresh ingredients. They are already proportioned out. All you got to do is cut your veggies and get ready to cook. Uh, it makes cooking healthy meals so easy and super fun. And you will not have wasted unused ingredients, which always makes me feel guilty and horrible. Plus, you're kind of getting a masterclass in cooking with every box because you're getting new things and new ingredients and stuff you might not even pick out at the grocery store for yourself. It's perfect for date night. You can cook with friends. I've said before we like to have people over and make all of the meals in the box and kind of do it like a little appetizer party. Uh, And you can even do a family plan if you have kids at your house. And that way the whole family eats well, has fun, and learns about nutrition and cooking together. So I've been looking at the upcoming menus Super excited about the shaved beef bow with hoisin and pickles and soba salad. Patrick loves to make soba, so I'm really excited about like a new soba variation for Patrick to be making. Yummo! Uh, I have been eyeballing the vegetarian menu because there's Szechuan-style eggplant with cashews and rice, and uh, that sounds super yummy to me. The great thing about 
any of these delicious sounding meals is that each of them is only going to be about 500 to 700 calories per serving. And they're so delicious, they do not taste like locale food. Uh, cooking takes you about a half an hour. The shipping is flexible and free. And the menus are brand new every time. You're not going to make the same meal twice. And they'll work around your schedule and your dietary preferences. And you're going to be working with seasonal ingredients, super fresh. Uh, you're going to cook incredible meals. And you're really going to be blown away by what you can achieve in the kitchen without any special skills, really. It's just a better way to cook with Blue Apron. So check out this week's menu. Get your first two meals for free if you go to blueapron.com slash history. That is the real deal. Two free meals on us when you go to blueapron.com slash history. And now we'll get back into some history. So as we just alluded to before the break, uh, after all this favorable news coverage in the post-war years, this program kind of faded away from the public consciousness in the British Empire. That started to change in 1986 when a woman known as Madeline wrote a letter to a British social worker named Margaret Humphreys. Humphreys had been running a support service called Triangle, which was for birth parents, adoptive parents, and adults who had been adopted as children. So it was for all three pieces of the adoption triangle to kind of get to know each other and have a support group and that sort of a thing. Madeline was living in Adelaide and had heard about the service from a friend who had taken a trip to Britain. And Madeline's letter said that she had been taken from a children's home where she had been living because her parents had died when she was four and sent to Australia. So when Humphreys read this letter, she thought Madeline must be mistaken or misremembering that there had to be some other explanation because the idea of a four-year-old being sent from Britain to Australia without a guardian there was just frankly unbelievable. Not long after that, though, another woman at a triangle meeting who had been adopted as a child told a story of basically remembering as an adult that she had had a brother. When she managed to track this brother down, it turned out he also had been sent to Australia. Even as she started searching for birth records and the records of Madeline's parents' deaths, Humphreys thought this must all have been some kind of misunderstanding. But after looking for birth records one day at St. Catherine's house, which is where all the birth, death, and marriage records were kept, she walked to the nearby Australian High Commission house and asked about the records of children who had been sent to Australia after World War II. And the wording of the answer that she got set off some alarm bells. Quote, the records of the children have been sent to Canberra. That made it sound like there were many. So she started to do some more investigating. She put ads in Australian newspapers asking for people who had been sent to Australia 